You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Hello and welcome to Simulcast. I'm Ben Simon and I'll be hosting this evening's Advances in Simulation episode, which is part of our formal relationship with the Open Access Simulation Journal, where we discuss a recently published paper. And we're here tonight to talk about a paper called Community-Based In-Situ Simulation, Bringing Simulation to the Masses. It's by Barbara Walsh et al. on behalf of the Inspire and Impacts Investigators and was published in Advances in Simulation in December 2019. So to help me with this discussion, uh, we've got the lead author of this paper, Dr. Barbara Walsh, as well as my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Ben Lawton. Dr. Barbara Walsh is an attending physician in the Pediatric Emergency Department at Boston Medical Center and a clinical associate professor of pediatrics at Boston University School of Medicine. She's the director of in-situ and mobile outreach simulation at Boston Medical Center, where she is implementing innovative interprofessional in-situ programs at community sites. Barbara, thanks for coming along. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show today. And can you tell us a little bit about of, uh, your work with simulation outreach, such as with Comet and Impacts? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually started Comet um, probably about 10 years ago, and it initially started more as a pilot and really a way to see if people in the community were interested in partnering with some pediatric emergency medicine attendings for a little bit of extra education around pediatric emergencies. Um, One of the things that I noticed as a pediatric emergency medicine attending way back when was that we would have people calling for transfers. We'd sort of try and give ideas or suggestions about how to optimize care while they were waiting for transport. And a lot of that stuff didn't get followed through on. And I thought it was a bit curious So I just partnered with a a pediatric intensive care attending at UMass when I was out there, and we basically reached out to our community partners and said, hey, how would you like us to come and do some simulation? And that's sort of really how it all started. And what we learned, which I don't think was a surprise, is that most general emergency medicine attendings, at least in this small pilot, weren't very comfortable or confident in caring for critically ill kids and that as the acuity got higher, their confidence got lower. Um, and, and that's sort of how it all started. And I wanted to sort of look at it more formally. And basically, myself, Mark Arbach, a few other people um, in the, the sort of north, north end region of, of the United States got together and formed impacts. And that's where we actually got funded and we studied it a little bit more formally, um, got some publications out of that. And then when I came back to Boston Medical Center, I pitched this idea to my simulation director and he fell in love with it. And he said, this is brilliant. And he basically supported me getting the program up and running again in Massachusetts. So it's been really, really exciting. And then to have the papers um, get published sort of after this has really been an extra boost in support to the work that I'm doing. Fantastic. So really looking forward to exploring that stuff more because it's been really nicely synthesized in this paper. Um, And as our discussant this month, we've also got uh, my friend and colleague and also my boss, uh, Dr. Ben Lawton, who's the B1 to my B2, is a pediatric emergency physician working at Logan Hospital in Queensland, Australia. Uh, he is a co-founder of the FOMED website, Don't Forget the Bubbles. And uh, yeah, he's got the misfortune of being my boss because he's the director of Stork, which is a simulation team from Queensland Children's Hospital. B1, how are you going this evening? I'm good, Ben. Thanks for inviting me along. No worries. And can you tell us a little bit about Stork and what you do? Yeah, so uh, Stork is basically Children's Health Queensland's paediatric simulation outreach program. So we teach, I think, in 37 hospitals in Queensland now, where we run courses that are 
founded around basic life support and a more advanced pediatric life support, but uh, are really focused on how those algorithms would be played out in the hospitals where we deliver those courses. So we have five simulation coordinators, two nurse educators and um, uh, an administrative support officer and two of us as, uh, as senior medical officers that travel around and get to run those courses with people all over all over the state. Great. So a fair bit of overlap there. So looking forward to uh, getting your thoughts on that. So I'm just going to give a quick overview of the article. Uh, this paper addresses an issue that resonates definitely pretty strongly with me, which is how to disseminate simulation-based education beyond the realm of academic medical centers. I think it would be a fair statement to argue that the bulk of simulation training worldwide occurs in big tertiary hospitals or sim centers with more resources, staff and equipment, particularly simulation labs. But in terms of bang for your buck, we're potentially putting educational effort into places that frequently already have higher standards of care and more solid knowledge bases, while our colleagues, as Bob has described, uh, choose to work in more resource-limited settings, and they may struggle a bit with limited educational opportunities and decreased frequencies of specific presentations. So this paper by Walsh et al. describes a number of innovations in sim-based education that have allowed the modality to spread beyond sim centres to more regional settings, and it outlines four community-based in-situ simulation programs from North America in order to provide a bit of a roadmap for others wishing to spread simulation to the masses, and then it closes with some themes and reflections on common experiences and shared learning. So, Barbara, why is this simulation outreach so important to you and how do you think it affects patient care in regional settings? So um, that's an awesome question. Um, I, you know, I think obviously as a pediatric emergency medicine physician, I'm truly passionate about peds emergency care and what I do. And if you think about it, um, kids should get the right care anytime, anywhere, any place that they present. But the majority, at least in the United States, and I don't know how it translates into other countries, but the vast majority of children that go to an emergency care setting go to a general ED. It's about 93% of children go to an emergency medicine facility that's really staffed by general ED doctors. And so that means, if you think about it the other way, only 7% are seeing a pediatric emergency medicine subspecialist. So that really the people that are the frontline providers for these kids coming in critically ill are the general emergency medicine trained doctors. And we do know that there's sort of limited exposure um, to these high frequency, um, I'm sorry, these low frequency high stakes events. So for me, especially after doing the pilot with Comet and realizing our partners really aren't comfortable and when we make suggestions, they're not following through, you know, I, I think sort of becoming the face of the academic center and going out and sharing expertise through simulation um, has been, I think, a really wonderful way to not only make these sort of relationships form and um, grow and a trust to develop, but really to sort of share with them knowledge, tips and tricks, um, nuances, and really sort of be able to bring the level of care to a different and better level, so to speak. And not to say that they're not well-trained in what they do, pediatric ER physicians just have a little bit of an expertise, obviously. Um, And I think the nice article that really emphasizes the crux of of, of why we're doing this and why hopefully partly it works is that, you know, Marianne Gaucher-Hill back in August of 2019 uh, published in Pediatrics, um, Pediatric Readiness 
of hospitals really truly correlates into decreased mortality for children. And the number I believe was around 12% to 3%. I'm not saying the exact, um, but was in essence, that was about what it correlated to. It's huge. And if we can go to these sites um, and share our expertise, talk about systems issues, identify latent safety threats before they happen, and really work with teams so that they can become a little bit more savvy, well-oiled, so to speak, it's really going to help them give children better care. And in sort of the final term of what we're all caring about is that they're going to have decreased mortality. So I really think it's a huge win. It's fun to do. And it's wonderful to go out there into the community and create these relationships. Thanks. And I guess what I'm hearing from that is that there is some educational outreach, uh, but there's also some sort of systems and um algorithms that you can help with as well as a a level of courtship as well that is occurring as you build relationships between hospitals. Uh, Ben Lawton, you travel a lot around Queensland, our state, delivering pediatric resuscitation education. What sort of healthcare knowledge or systems gaps have come up from your travels that really benefit from this sort of locally delivered simulation? So a lot of what Bob says sounds very uh, familiar to me, I think. I think what really stands out to me is the practical details because most facilities don't see a lot of critically unwell children in real life. So being able to run simulated events within the environments and within the teams uh, that would be managing those is really, really valuable because you can have locally focused conversations. Like there are other courses that I think embed algorithms quite well, but they do it in more generic senses. So being able to have specific conversations about specific issues in specific places uh, and indeed to try and facilitate some solutions to those issues is, I think, really, really valuable. We've we've had quite a few sort of specific examples and something that used to come up a lot on our courses was uh, drug dosing resources. So you get a critically ill kid and everybody would pull out a different and appropriate but a different resource for where to look up their drug doses. That resource wouldn't match the smart pumps that they had in the hospital and still doesn't in a lot of places. Uh, But being able to have a conversation about actually which one do we want to use in this hospital and what systems can we build around that to support it makes an enormous difference in terms of the the safety of paediatric resuscitations when when they happen. So some resource sharing, uh, some skills rehearsal, but also that would reveal or uncover some important conversations within that service that they need to have on their own about uh, a path forward for specific issues. Absolutely, yeah. Great. Um, So, uh, Barbara, the paper then describes three simulation methodologies that allow for simulation teaching to uh, start occurring in more regional areas, uh, in situ simulation, mobile simulation, and distributed simulation. Our listeners will be familiar enough, I suspect, with in situ simulation as a term, but I know personally I was much less familiar with mobile and distributed. In fact, I had trouble kind of separating them somewhat in my head conceptually. Would you be able to explain to us what these newer terms mean? Yes, um, I think you're asking a great question. Um, to be honest with you, I think it's really, it all comes down to semantics. When we were working on the paper, I used a lot of these terms a bit interchangeably. And the editors really wanted to be true to the dictionary of simulation um, in healthcare. And these are all just, these are all defined um, as different entities, even though I think they all have a similar meaning. So distributed simulation is when you create a makeshift environment that's similar to the one that you're working in, but you bring the environment. So it's like bringing the technology 
Um, mobile simulation really refers more to a van or a, a van, excuse me, a van or a bus that actually has the simulation lab inside of it per se, like a recreational vehicle. So, um, you know, there are some rural places, um, in the United States where they actually have a recreational vehicle that inside has turned into a simulation lab and they drive that to different parts of the state to bring the simulation lab to other places. And then, you know, inside to simulation obviously is practicing within one's own environment. So in a way, they're almost all some form of insight to, but not specifically mobile and distributor, not your actual particular environment um, in the sense that I go to people's trauma bays, their actual trauma bay, not a makeshift one and not bringing them one. I'm actually in there. So insight two, I think is a little bit more specific. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so in your opinion, is there one of these developments, you don't have to pick one, like pick between your children, but has one of them struck out as you as a, as being the most helpful at improving accessibility and opening up these pathways to peripheral centers? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm biased. We know that. Um, I really believe in sort of what I've been doing in my region um, in uh, New England. I think that because of the portability of simulation mannequins, the fact that they're now tetherless, um, they're certainly easy to use. I think it is so much more impactful to actually bring the simulation equipment to someone's actual environment of care. I think there's a time and a place for the simulation lab. I think having a mobile van is fantastic um, because you can bring it to different places, but it cannot replace practicing in your own unit and figuring out what are the things that aren't working in our unit. You know, if you're, if you're in a makeshift environment or you're in someone's van practicing with similar equipment, that's great. And there's going to be plenty of things you're going to learn. But the system stuff, the environmental stuff that comes out of being in your own trauma bay or your own surgical suite, whatever you want that to be, I think is far more powerful. It's not just the education. It really has to do with the system and how to make the system better. Um, and I, I think the ability to bring all these smaller equipments that are tetherless makes a huge difference. It was not that easy five years ago. It really wasn't. So actually, in terms of technological development, just the sort of compactness, and particularly in pediatrics, we're a bit lucky at uh, having some mannequins that you can pick up and hold in your arm, that that's really been an important technological innovation. I'm going to get a little bit spicier here, and I, I want to ask the group one issue that still concerns me, I guess, I, I felt it somewhat implied in the paper, is that there remains within the simulation community a heavy emphasis with these innovations on mobilizing mannequin technology. And as someone who'd like to think we can do an effective in situ simulation with a pillow and a face drawn on it if we needed to. Are we as a simulation community really limiting our ability to spread great teaching and systems check opportunities due to a bit of an obsession with fidelity? Do we really need a mannequin that mechanically breathes or an expensive mobile lab to hit the learning objectives that we're going for here? I might start with you, B1. So I, I think 99% of the time we don't. I think most people uh, are over or most people that I work with are over invested in technology, to be perfectly honest with you. I think the when you're traveling, reliability is really, really key. And you're much better having something simple that doesn't break than something that relies on a bit of fancy technology that doesn't work and then throws cues. Because I think it's about how you cue your participants to make decisions and whether the mannequin can provide the appropriate cues. And sometimes we need to deliver those with uh, with confederates or with other uh, 
manners. And I know um, I know you've had conversations on Simulcast before about the danger of teaching people to respond to monitors rather than patients. And I think that that is a real risk with any of these uh, things, really. But I'm not sure that most of the mannequins, that certainly that I've seen either in, in use or at trade shows, really deviate from that anyway. Like you, you still need to learn how to find the pulse on the mannequin, which is different from finding the pulse on a real patient. So I'm not sure those clinical skills quite tied together. I do think the pre-briefing is really important so that whatever equipment you're using, particularly if it's equipment that people don't have access to in the environment where you're teaching regularly, that you allow time and uh, an opportunity for appropriate pre-briefing for people to get comfortable with the equipment that you're using. But I would reflect back on what Bob said about real environments and real systems, because I think if you're talking about team function, then having an authentic team is much, much more valuable than any mannequin technology that you can fall back on. And if you're talking about environmental changes, environmental barriers to uh, smooth resuscitation flow, then actually practicing in the real environment, again, much more valuable than the technology that's, that's encased in the mannequin itself, I think. Thanks. Anything that you'd like to add, Barbara? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny, and you guys might laugh at this a little bit, but when I first started as a pediatric emergency medicine attending, I was at UMass Medical Center. It was back in the early 2000s. And I'm not joking. I used to take my daughter's American Girl doll to work and use that as the mock code baby. And I can tell you, it had just as good an impact. I think we do love all the bells and whistles, but I think if you do a simulation properly with the right information, people are still going to get good things out of it. Um, The cases that I go around doing, I do tailor to different programs in terms of things that they're interested in, but I bring a low fidelity mannequin and I often use it for at least one of the cases. It just lies there. It doesn't do a whole lot of anything. Um, And I have had situations where, you know, the fancy equipment can sometimes not work well and you have to improvise. So I think understanding that it's more about the environment, giving the right cues, the pre-brief, as was previously mentioned, you can have a very successful simulation without having all the bells and whistles. Um, I think as as technology has advanced, we're all sort of uh, crazy about it, but sometimes simple is best. Great. Thank you so much for that. So with regard to the, uh, going back to the paper, it then moves on to discuss the use of Kern's framework of curricular development to inform the creation of four educational programs. And to give our listeners a quick dot point rundown, the framework is number one, problem identification, two, a needs assessment for targeted learners, three, goals and objectives, four, educational strategies, five was implementation, and six was evaluation and feedback. And table one in the article summarizes some nice examples from each step of that process. But I wonder if I could ask you some specifics about this. Uh, So Barbara, in terms of your programs, how did they go about identifying the specific clinical problems that were really most in need of an educational intervention? And how did you then foster the local buy-in to support a solution to that? Yeah, no, those are great questions. Um, When I initially started Comet, it was really just going out into the community. The first thing that we noticed, again, was really the transfers that were coming in and keeping track of some of the issues or uh, the chief complaints uh, that were coming through and and recommendations not being followed upon. Um, So when we went out 
and did that pilot. It was about seven institutions and we ran different types of cases. And we, we also sort of had an evaluation uh, tool afterwards to talk about what are some of their concerns. And it was really doing that those initial pilots, at least for the Comet program, that helped us understand what some of those needs were. So there's a little bit of what are we observing, but also what do they perceive as their own issues in their environment. So that's how we sort of did Comet. In terms of some of the other programs, the, um, the program out of um, the Midwest, well, there's two out of the Midwest. One is a NICU program, and they used focus groups as well as transfer data and delivery data in the area. And then in terms of impacts, um, we really sort of did it as a, a collaborative group in our different areas and almost, in a sense, used the original cases to go and look at what the gaps in care were. And a lot of data came out of that in terms of the cases that we chose. And as I've continued to use those cases and done other ones, other gaps have appeared. And we sort of based a lot of changes and targeted interventions on a lot of that data. Um, the buy-in question is very interesting. When I had done Comet, I think I was one of the first people in my area that actually had successfully piloted it and been going to places and not having a problem. When we initially formed our impacts collaboration, um, more for the purposes of research, people were really curious, like, how did I get into these places? Like, was it arduous? Like, what was, what were the barriers? Um, how long did it take? And, and I have to be honest with you, I don't know if I'm just lucky. I, I call myself very gracefully persistent. Um, but a lot of these community hospitals, my residents would go to once they graduated. And I had been at UMass for quite, quite a bit of time, had done some networking. And for me, it was as simple as emailing the right people and saying, you remember the simulations I did. I'd love to come there and show you guys what we're doing and, and maybe share some, some educational modules with you. And that's how simple it was. Um, so I got lucky. For, for other people in other states, it was really a lot of reaching out to medical directors, nurse educators or nurse managers, um, sort of doing a presentation with a formal pitch, whether it's slides or uh, a Zoom call or something like that. I just got really lucky and I, I still to this day, a lot of uh, what's going on with Comet is word of mouth, people coming to see it, um, calling referrals. Um, I've just been very lucky. It, it's been fairly easy. Uh, so I just want to follow up from that a little bit because it sounds like there is some uh, inherent charisma and charm in the Dr. Barbara Walsh that's getting you in there, but also some longitudinal relationship building and the benefits from uh, sort of, people having positive educational experiences uh, with your service, gradually building up over time and building some support. One thing that I've found interesting is sometimes we do get a fair amount of uh, often medical resistance uh, and this sense of being a bit of an ivory tower trying to come to tell you how to do things. Um, and then we sometimes get this lightning in a bottle where uh, there has been an event or some kind of uh, error or poor patient outcome that motivates a sudden need for education in pediatric resuscitation in particular. And I'm just curious uh, to you, Ben Lawton, is there an opportunity there or a challenge in trying to harness what people want in the moment um, versus what might be needed to actually build a, a long-term strong foundational curriculum? That is a great question. And I think there is a challenge in that. Yes. But I think if you've got a, bigger picture view then it's the kinds of crises that happen are relatively predictable I think and I think if you have an idea of what a curriculum should look like then it's fairly 
easy to choose the component of that curriculum that would be appropriate for that uh, for that particular response. Your point about charm and charisma, I think, is actually really valid. I, I've found that if you can hire it just as well as having it, which is good. But I, I really rely on, we really rely on our simulation coordinators being mates really with uh, local champions and local contacts. And that network that they develop and propagate, I think is really crucial to keeping programs going. And whatever the foot in the door is, whether that's a Sentinel event or whether that's some other driver, that relationship building and relationship maintenance is is just crucial. I have to echo that. Our local emergency medical services for children has a link to my website um, so that the PECs, the pediatric emergency care coordinators, know about it and have access. Every quarterly newsletter that goes out to our, our PECs also has a whole section on Comet to remind them that their service is available and encourages use. And then finally, um, MASEP, which is the Massachusetts American College of Emergency Physicians, also um, supports the Comet program. So I've been lucky in that I have this these sort of professional um, groups that are actually sort of pushing it as well. And for instance, we have a regional pediatric readiness day coming up for six of the states in the northern um, sort of uh, USA area. And a lot of them are going to be PECs and different people from different hospitals out of these six states. And I'll have the opportunity to network with those as well. So I've just been fortunate with some of these other adjuncts. That's been great. To speak to the issue of a Sentinel event, you never want it to be a Sentinel event that brings you there. And I, and I will be honest, there was one hospital that I was working with or trying to get into. And it was a place that you know, we would see some transfers from and some questionable medical care. And eventually there were three Sentinel events that happened in transfers to me where I finally reached out and said, please let us help you. And, and that sort of was a game changer for them. I don't ever want it to be that though. It shouldn't be that. We should be proactive and not reactive. And, and the nice thing about the simulation and the outreach is we can really help prevent some of these things from happening. And that's the goal. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important point. And I guess to me, uh, what I'm hearing from this particular segment of the conversation is that there is uh, some online uh, scaffolding and connection that we can make. There is the face-to-face or uh, local relationships between sort of our, what's the right word, um, sort of outpost type role of our simulation coordinators, as as well as sort of that long-term relationship building, but that there will be, you know, a strong curricular framework can allow us to tailor the right educational intervention that a hospital uh, that we don't always work with uh, wants or needs. Sorry, I just add to that. The other group that I think is important to have relationships with, sometimes those sentinel events are administrative rather than um, clinical necessarily. I don't know if that's a fair way of describing them, but there'll be an external review of a MET program and um, some hospital executive will come under criticism for the amount of training that their staff have had. Uh, and being able to provide an off-the-shelf quick solution is often an easy answer to the problem that people have. And the other groups that I think advocate quite strongly for our program now are other statewide uh clinical entities, so the Sepsis Collaborative, the Pediatric Patient Safety Service in Queensland, because we have synergistic goals and everybody recognises we have synergistic goals. So the relationships with those parts of, uh, of organisations are really important as well. 
Thanks. So the article then describes four exemplar programs that link academic centres with community hospitals, uh, including the Paediatric Acute Care Transport Simulation Program from Norton Children's Hospital and the University of Louisville, uh, Neonatal Intensive Care Simulation Program from Raleigh Hospital for Children, the COMAT Program, which uh, Barbara has outlined already, and IMPACTS, which is Improving Paediatric Care Through Simulation. So there's a very thorough summary of each program in the article, but as the primary author, Barbara, what are the big things you'd really like listeners to know about these programs? And were there particular successes or systems improvements that stood out for you? Yes, um, absolutely. So I think one of the biggest messages is that simulation in these types of programs aren't solely for education. And I think people look a lot at it as training and education specifically. But I think the nice thing about all of them, is that there is training and education that's critical to each subspecialty, but it's more encompassing. I think a huge part of it is that it's really a quality and safety initiative for sites. Um, It's talking about PEDS readiness, preparedness, communications, relationships, resources. There's just so much depth and breadth to it beyond training and education. And I think that's a key message. In terms of particular successes or systems improvements, I have to say it's been astounding and it's been incredibly fulfilling to watch what we're doing have an impact. There's one institution that we started going to back in, I don't know, 2013 or 2014, and it was a sort of rural community hospital that really had limited resources in terms of their staffing model, um, as well as equipment and things like that. And we watched their entire system and functionality change over three or four or five years. Our program now has taken the place of PALS because we're so much more in depth in terms of what we teach and not just sort of walking through basic skills. We're really sort of talking about application and systems. So their ER and their communication and so many different things about their system has changed. And just in terms of just throwing out a couple things, in terms of systems, places have gotten new code carts, reorganized their code carts, come up with policies for pediatrics, eliminated them and hung them in their trauma bay, um, started educational didactics. Many places that we've gone to are no longer stocking D50 on pediatric code carts. Um, in terms of equipment changes, um, people are now knowing what, what McGill forceps are, where they are, and how to use them, which I think is huge. Uh, changing from uncuffed ET tubes um, to cuffed ET tubes, which you would think would be something simple given the AAP has endorsed that for a while. But we, we found that very commonly in most places, if they had the Brazel cart, they did not have cuffed ET tubes. Um, there have been, there's one institution that I'm working with where we met in December. Uh, we've been doing uh, quarterly simulation events. And finally, I sat down with their entire senior ER management team and we came up with a six month plan of all the things that they wanted to focus on changing. And I'm sort of being an assistant to how to help them institute those changes. And some of it's setting up a section that's pediatric friendly and makes sense, having larger algorithms on the wall. And then I think the best part for me though, is when you get that feedback from attendings, that unsolicited email that talks about a patient encounter that they had or a big win for them, whether it was the team or an individual knowing how to do something. And I I think on a final note, I've seen some concept applied from cases to a completely different case. Um, And my example would be sort of using a three-way stopcock for sepsis in a critically hypotensive pediatric patient, and then using that same concept for hemorrhagic shock. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And and so I, I think it's been astounding to me to see how these places where I've gone over and over again, things have really changed. And while I don't have data, hard data for numbers on 
what Comet is doing. I plan to be looking at that going forward while I'm doing the program. I really do think it's making a difference for kids. Well, that's lovely to hear. And, and I guess to me what uh, stands out is that in some ways education is a little bit of a speed date or gateway drug to introducing a longer-term uh, relationship building strategy that allows resource sharing and uh, strategy sharing as well and ongoing support psychologically as well as yep. cognitively. I will say people do reach out. So after we've done the program, people will reach out with pediatric specific questions or something will come up about a policy and they want some more information about it. And they really are taking advantage of the relationship. It's a win. You're listening to Simulcast. Fantastic. So the article then states that despite their origination from a number of geographically separated academic medical centers and disparate pediatric subspecialty fields, the experiences of the programs have been similar in several important ways. They describe that relationship building between hospital, engaging with local education programs, that in situ simulation allowed assessment of local pediatric readiness, the importance of flexibility, and that good organization and preparation is paramount. And so, Ben Lawton, I'm just wondering, were there any of those shared experiences or in the discussion of the paper that really resonated for you from a similar service? Yeah, basically all of it, to be honest. I was kind of reading it, wishing that it was around six years ago when we were setting up Stork because there were was a lot of gold in there, really, as far as I could see. I think what... But, we've discussed a little bit already that ambassadorial role of the service is, is really key. And I think you really need to consider that when, when you're recruiting. Uh, I think it's good to appreciate what sort of education programs are existing in places already that people might already have invested time and energy in so that you're not, uh, not raining on their parade and not reinventing the wheel and doing things that are supplementary and useful. I think those points about flexibility are really key. Like of the 37 hospitals that we teach in, they vary from quaternary university hospitals to very small places with one recess bed and two beds in the ED. And the differences that you need to work around people's workflows uh, as well as their environments are, uh, I think you just have to work around what works for people uh, in in their environment. And... I think really my my big take-home point was the same as Bob's, and I think that's the realisation that we've been coming to over the last five years, that actually we thought this was an education programme when we started it, but really it needs to move into that quality improvement patient safety space. Uh, and, and the education is the icing on the cake that comes with the, with the quality improvement process that it's so powerful in, in driving. And Barbara, anything you'd like to add? Emphasizing that patient quality and safety really is a game changer for a lot of places when you try and get in the door. Um, And I I think that as people are starting to see the bigger impact, I think that's really been a big push for it to be more widely accepted and um, appreciated. So I I think um, we just have to keep showing them that it's really all about the entirety of, of making the unit better, not just education. It sounds like we're all in agreement there. So uh, we've talked about why we think this is important. We've talked about some of the strategies for setting up uh, both uh, from a technological perspective, but also in terms of outreach and relationship building. And the article then closes with some thoughts about sustainability uh, and highlighting that the importance of that is uh, 
um, critical to long-term success of these programs. There are a number of tips that are offered, including strategies for obtaining community funding, framing the courses as quality improvement initiatives rather than educational programs, and also in particular, a clear demonstration of value. Uh, And that to me can sometimes be really hard to do well. So I was just wondering if there's any examples from you guys of demonstrations of great value and how do we, if we're forming one of these programs, best prove our relevance to organizations? So I'd like to say that when Marianne Gaucher's paper came out this summer that I alluded to earlier, the fact that increasing your pediatric readiness really improves um, children's mortality has been very helpful. I think sort of talking about having numbers to back up what we're doing because proving it on a one and done is going to be too hard. And, And I do think the sustainability piece is the hardest piece and the one that people struggle with the most and showing your value value is very difficult. They, you know, some people want to return on investment. They want to, they want to see how the numbers are changing. And, you know, if you can prevent one lawsuit from one patient, I mean, it more than pays for itself. But I think for me, in terms of showing value, some of it's the feedback that you get from other physicians. I've had medical directors reach out and say, you know, after you came within a week, we had two of the cases you presented and people really knew what they were doing. Things happened in a timely manner. Communication was great. So even though it's a little bit anecdotal and word of mouth, I think there's power to those statements. Um, The other thing I do to show value, I invite others to come to a session at a different facility. And I've just started doing that this year. I think it's hard to articulate what we actually do and the power of it in the moment it's one thing to talk, oh yeah, we're going to bring this program to you. We do simulation, we make it real, et cetera. But actually showing someone, having them see it and experience it in real life is very different. So now at some of the places I go, I invite other medical directors or nurse managers from different facilities that are thinking about having Comet come to them. And I say, why don't you come and just see what it's all about? Or here's some, here's some people that you can contact that have had the program and feel free to give them a call and ask about it. I said, it's really, really hard to envision what happens. Um, And I find that that's actually starting to work. But there's so many ways, there's so many ways to approach figuring out how how to make it sustainable. And grants are hard. Some places do have funding from a grant, but it's hard to keep that sustainable over time. So they really has to be buy-in from administration. And I I think uh, one thing that really uh, stands out from that um, comment is I think that it can feel like, particularly if we're coming with our research hat on, that those anecdotal stories can feel like they're not data enough. But interestingly, when we have gone to some uh, f- uh, programs seeking funding specifically, one of the things they actually want was tell us the stories about how this has changed care. We want to know some specific instances where this has actually helped. And I think being able to frame and uh, synthesize those stories that we're getting anecdotally is a really important skill that you've highlighted. So I will say for the, yeah, sorry to interrupt. So for the places that I do go to on a regular basis, I sort of had mentioned earlier, I have a six month things to change, um, activity list with one of the programs, but pretty much any of the places that we're now going to multiple times a year, we are tracking changes in the system. What have you done? And I'm actually taking pictures of equipment like code cart changes, now having medication books that are PD specific. So we're actually tracking all of that longitudinally so that at some point we can say, 
Here are all the places we went. Here are all the changes that we documented happened. And I think that hard and fast data will also make a difference long term. Yeah, absolutely. So having some accountability um, as the educational organization to document what you're seeing changed over a long term period of time. That sounds really useful. Any strategies from you, Ben Lawton, before we close up discussion? Uh, I agree with that. The only other thing that I think is worth thinking about is value to who. I think we've got some quite strong advocates in that we provide a bit of a um, a bit of a way of implementing changes that other people in other groups in the organisation want to make, uh, and, and a way of effecting action points, I guess, from patient safety services, from coroners reports and things like that because we have a network through which we can disseminate uh, practice changing information the other thing that i think is worth looking for is where is the uh, opportunity in the system currently in my environment there's a lot of really low value education that's funded at quite a significant cost to organizations and when you can fit in with resources or fit in under an umbrella of something that's already spent but do it much more effectively then there's a big opportunity and I think there is a big opportunity with with programs like these to do that. Fantastic thank you so much so uh, we've had a lovely discussion about uh, pediatric resuscitation the needs peripherally and the ways that simulation uh, can help as an ambassadorial type strategy for both education but also systems and relationship building improvement Um, I have a final question for you Barbara so as we close this discussion can I ask you as the lead author who's seen a number of these programs now where do you see them evolving in five years time? I think that's an excellent question. So for me, my vision has always been on a much larger scale. Um, the one thing that you might notice about the name Comet, it's not about pediatrics. So Comet stands for Community Outreach Mobile Education Training. And my vision was always bigger. I think that as an academic institution with a lot of subspecialty care and knowing that there are other places with limited resources, that we should be doing other programs and other disciplines. We should be reaching out with OB stuff or an anesthesia course or something. And I'll, and I'll give you a, for instance, um, I'm currently doing a, um, a multi-discipline interprofessional study right now with my OB unit, my general ED unit, our neonatology unit, and the pediatric ER unit. And some of these, it really came out of going to some of these hospitals where they might be an hour or so away from the, the the closest OB. And one of the institutions I went to, I said, so if you have a mom delivering here, like, are you guys prepared for a neonatal delivery if it happens? Because these were sort of vacation areas in New England. And the look of horror across their faces. And I said, I, I think you need some OB and delivery sims. And people were like, oh my goodness, absolutely. And a, a few of the places that I've now been are starting to ask for that. So my hope after this year is we're going to start including some OB and neonatal deliveries as part of Comet. But I really think there's a place for, you know, having, you know, a procedural course that can come to you with the right experts or doing a sedation course for different parts of a unit. I think that there's a broader theme here where academic institutions can really share their expertise, form relationships and, and help drive better care for everyone everywhere. I think SIM is kind of become part of MOC and competencies down the road. And this is sort of a, another way that we can keep that, that theme and those skills up. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you, Barbara, and thank you, Ben, for coming along to our Advances in Simulation episode. Uh, really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks so much. Looking forward to talking to you again thank sometime. You.
Thank you very much for having me and discussing the paper. I appreciate it. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.